Let's open our Bibles together this morning to Colossians chapter 3, uh, where we will move ahead in our study. Some of you may say finally, but we will move ahead this morning uh, to verse 18, and we will read through chapter 4 and verse 1. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, and reading through chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the, receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Open our hearts and open our minds so that in these moments we might behold wonderful things in this, your word. Chief among those things, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, may our lives be transformed by his faithful and abiding presence so that you may receive all glory, honor, and praise. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Transformed Family. Well, as I studied this week, I came across the story of a little girl who had just seen the movie Cinderella. Uh, And you know, as young children do, she was excited to go home and to tell her mom about the movie, and she began to tell it, and and it just, you know, spewed out of her. It was the whole plot line, and it was, you know, the least bit tedious. You know how that is if you ever experience something like this. And so the mother, in an attempt to try to move past the story, to try to get to the end, she says, oh, okay, she says, yes, I know this movie. And she said, I know exactly how it ends. And the little girl pauses, and she's just the, the least bit perturbed at the interruption in her speech. And she says, well, well, how does it end then? And the mother says, well... The, the prince and Cinderella, they kiss, and they live happily ever after. And the little girl, without any sarcasm, without any bad intentions, she says, no, they didn't. They got married. <laughs> now, I pulled that from a commentary by R. Kent Hughes, and I did so for two reasons. One, it's funny. Um, It's something I can imagine some kids around here saying. But secondly, while we chuckle at it, the reality is most people out in the world, and maybe even some people here right now, sort of feel that way about marriage and family. Far from being happily ever after, you know, it feels more like maybe a burden. It feels like a battle. It feels like there are difficulties at every stage. It's a difficult reality simply to to navigate the day-to-day. And we certainly see those feelings uh, reflected in the state of marriage and family in our society right now, don't we? 
You know, I don't have to give you the statistics this morning. I don't have to point you to the specific examples of how we see this in reality. No, we all know the truth. Marriage and family as institutions, as foundational pieces of our world and of our culture, they are in shambles. And the effects of that reality are so pervasive that they are so far-reaching that it would take us weeks to, to get to the bottom of it, to describe them all clearly. And so rather than try to do that, let's simply say that the breakdown of the family unit, it is the direct cause of many, if not most, if not all, of the troubles we are facing as a society and as a church today. You know, it's one thing if all of this was simply out there in the world. But the reality is, is it is just as much here in the life of the church as it is anywhere. Though we have been entrusted with these things, marriage and family, we have not done a very good job of honoring or cherishing either one of these things. We haven't held each other or ourselves up to the standard that God's word has for us. And it's a clear standard, friends. It is, it, he, he cannot be any more clear than what he is on how he would have us to be married couples, how he would have us to be parents and families. He, he intends for his covenant people to honor him this way. But because we haven't done that, the results are often devastating. And so, uh, as God's people, if we are to live in obedience, if we are to follow his word, and that should be the desire of our hearts, then we need to be reminded of what these institutions are like. We need to be reminded of how he would have us to act, okay? And thankfully, as I've already mentioned, there's no lack of that in Scripture. Um, outside of salvation itself, Marriage and family may be the thing that, that God points us to most often in Scripture. And it's particularly a favorite of the Apostle Paul. And here in Colossians 3, he picks it up again. Okay, he, he does it in Ephesians, he does it in Corinthians, he does it all over the place. But he does it again here in Colossians chapter 3. And what he gives us here are some guideposts. He gives us some commands on how we are specifically to act in the roles that he has given us, okay? And so we want to consider that, but before we just jump right in, let me acknowledge from the start that, that there are many people, particularly out in the world, but even people here, not, well, maybe not here, I hope not here, but maybe here, people in the church universally who would suggest to us that maybe Paul's advice on marriage and family particularly his role, his advice on the roles of husbands and wives and parents and children, maybe those aren't the best things for us to follow. Maybe they're culturally conditioned, right? Maybe they're a product of his time. They're rules specific to the Roman Greek world that, that Paul was a part of. They're just cultural norms, and so maybe we can avoid them. They're, they're antiquated. We need to reconsider them for today. On the other end of the spectrum, 
some will just flat out say that they believe that Paul is a misogynist and a chauvinist and a pig who doesn't believe in the rights or care for the welfare of women or children. Now, those are some big allegations. Those are some tough allegations. And if we're going to hold to any sort of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, then we as the church must wrestle with those allegations, okay? And so my goal this morning is threefold, and you see it there reflected in the outline if you got one this morning, okay? In Colossians chapter 3, and this is probably going to take us two weeks, so if you're here visiting this week, you've got to come back next week because you've got to hear what I got, how we're going to finish it up. But today, what I want you to consider is the grounds of Paul's teaching. I want to try to establish the grounds of why he says what he says, These are not simply culturally conditioned commands, but they are universal, and they are binding on each of us, okay? Secondly, I want to consider the actual practice of Paul's teaching. Practically, what does it mean to do what he calls us to do here? And then thirdly, and we're going to get to this today, but but we'll really get to this next week, but I want us to wrestle with the results of Paul's teaching. If we live like he calls us to live as husbands and wives, as, as children, what's that mean for our lives? Does it mean ease? Does it mean everything is going to be just exactly like we, we want it to be? Friends, we'll wrestle with that and we'll see what he says, okay? So grounds, practice, and results. One last thing before we jump in. I give you these three things this morning with the prayer. That if you are here today and you are in a difficult marriage, if you are here today and there are mistakes in your past, if you're here today and you are just wrestling with all that you see going on in the world, what I want to say to you in the end, as if you'll stick with me, what I want to say to you in the end is there is hope and there is grace in Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners, who can forgive all things. I want to say to you that no matter where you may be right now, he loves you and we can look to him and he will see us through, okay? So that's where we're headed. Let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage are the grounds of Paul's teaching. The ground. Why why does he say these things the way that he says them? Well, it's interesting to note that all of this comes on the heels of what he has said in chapter 2, right? And you remember there he talked about Christian freedom, and he talked about equity uh, in verse 11 there in chapter 3. You remember he said there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian or slave, free. All are in Christ, right? In Galatians chapter 3, to our point today, he says it even more clearly. He says... There is no male or female in Christ. His point is there are no distinctions. All in Jesus are equal, equal in dignity, equal in worth. Then we get to verse 18. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And we say, hey, the equity that we've spent so much time talking about, maybe even the dignity it seems to have gone right out the window. Clearly, there is 
some distinction between husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and servants. And so we need to ask, what is it that Paul is doing here? Why the apparent shift here in his thought? Well, note, while there is a distinction being made, hear me say that, there is one. It is not a distinction in worth or dignity or value, and we know that simply by the fact that these words are here in the pages of Scripture. I want to read to you what one commentator notes. He says, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was a possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right, whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatsoever in the, in the, in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. She lived in the woman's apartment and did not join her menfolk even for meals. Same thing with children. There was a law called the, I'm on, if you're a Latin major, I'm about to butcher this, uh, the patria potestis, that's what we're going to go with, the power of the father. The father could do anything he wanted with his children. He could sell them, he could turn them into slaves, he could even take their lives. And so my point to you is that Paul's living in a culture who does not simply just neglect women and children, but has no respect for them whatsoever. And so, friends, when we turn to the pages of Scripture and we see Paul addressing directly wives and children in a letter that is meant to be read to the church as a whole, and not only does he address them, but he gives them commands. And not only does he give them commands, but he gives men commands immediately following them. My point is, is what he's doing is giving them dignity. What's he, what he's doing is giving them value. and He is placing them alongside those who in society, they would have never been placed alongside. And so the distinction that we have here is not one of worth. It's not one of value. But it's clear that there is a distinction. And the distinction that Paul is giving us here is one of authority. Husbands and parents and masters, they have an authority that wives and children and servants are to honor and to obey. Now, clearly, even as I say those words, even as they come out of my mouth, I recognize that we live in a world who will object to them immediately, who will say, no, that is not right. And let's be frank, our own sinful hearts, we hate it as bad as they do. We hate to hear that, and we don't like to submit to anyone or anything. So, Again, let me point out to you three things that are important here as we consider the grounds of why Paul says this. And again, they're on your outline if you're following along. What he calls first wives and children and servants to do in this specific circumstance is actually what he calls 
all Christians to do in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 21. Before, and that, that's the passage where he gets into this same argument about wives and husbands. But before he goes there, he says, Every one of you submit to one another. He's reading that to the church universally. That there are no distinctions. We are all meant in Christ to submit to one another. First to God, then to authorities in Romans 13 to parents in the Ten Commandments, and to brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this specific situation, husbands and wives and children, it's just a subset of what we are all meant to do in our lives everywhere. We are to submit to one another. Secondly, I want you to notice that the authority that, that he's talking about here is rooted not in culture, but it is rooted in creation itself, okay? Everybody turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This is a passage that is so familiar to us that it's almost like we don't even have to really read it. But friends, it is full of so many amazing and wonderful truths that we need to dwell on as often as we can. And so you'll remember as you turn there, God has made Adam, and he has named all of the animals, and yet there is no one suitable for Adam, right? There's no one there for him. And so you remember what God says to him. He says, we have to find you someone that, that, that can be your companion. We have to make someone, it's not fit for you to be alone, someone that, that can be with you. And so he puts the man into a deep sleep, and he takes from his side a rib, he forms woman. And he forms her. Not, not to be a doormat. Not to be uh, a slave. Not to be uh, an object. He forms her to be a helper, right? If Adam was created to sort of be God's vice regent on earth, to, to rule over the created order, and that's why he was made, then the woman was made to be the queen, right? She was meant to, to come alongside him, Adam, and, and help to do that. And friends, and I love this, we may not recognize that, but Adam does. He absolutely recognizes it. Look at verse 23. He says, whoa, this, this, me and you know exactly what this is like. You're going out for a fancy dinner or something like that and your wife comes out or maybe when, she, when you got married and she walks through those doors and you see her and you go, okay, all right, right? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Adam is feeling that right now. He sees Eve and he says, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha in Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, Ish. There is an essential unity that Adam recognizes as he sees his bride, as he sees this one who was made to be his companion. He doesn't look at her and say, finally, somebody I can rule over, 
somebody I can be abusive to. Somebody, hey, no, he sees somebody and he says, this is somebody I want to I hang out with. This is somebody I want to spend the rest of my life with. This is somebody who can be my companion. There is unity. There is dignity there. But, and this is getting to our point, recognize that from the beginning that there is also in God's providence, in his sure plan, there is authority. Okay, Adam, from the beginning, husbands, they have headship, they have authority, they have responsibility to lead and to guide their families. And you see that in Genesis chapter 3. You remember, the, the serpent comes and he tempts who? He tempts initially Eve, right? And he convinces her to eat and then she takes the fruit and she takes it back to her husband and he eats. And then when God comes... Who does he address? Not Eve. He addresses the man. He addresses Adam. What have you done? And immediately we see the effects of the fall. Adam no longer wants that responsibility. He says, oh, this woman you gave me, she did it. But the responsibility is his. There is authority there in Adam. And so this is... A creational mandate, friends. This is, this is not something that Paul just came up with. This is not just a cultural thing for him. This is what he f- has found in the pages of Scripture. And this is true throughout Scripture. It's the way that God, in his good plan, and, and he says it in Genesis over and over again, right, in those first chapters, he creates, and it is good. It is good. And his good is a lot gooder than our good. Sorry, gooder is not a word, but you know what I mean. It's a lot more good than our good. It's perfect. It's holy. He saw what he had made and he said, this is good. Finally, before we move to the next point, and you're going, oh my merciful heavens, this is a lot of points, but that's why you have the outline. Uh, Let's note the, the honor and the high place, the role of submission is given, not only here, but in God's plan of redemption as a whole. Friends, we talk about the Trinity. We talk about that it is one God who exists in three co-divine, co-eternal, co-equal persons. They are one in substance, one in glory. There are no distinctions within the Godhead ontologically. This is a big word that means in their essence, they are the same. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are one. There is no subordination. There is no submission among the three persons ontologically. But then we get to salvation. We we look at God's plan of salvation in Scripture, and what do we see? Each person in the Trinity has a role. And what's clear is that the Father is in a position of authority. That, That the Son, he submits himself to the will of the Father, willingly taking the lowest place, willingly taking on sin, willingly receiving the wrath of God in the place of his people. And we have the Holy Spirit who proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. And what's his role? It's to make much of the Son. It's to magnify the Father and the Son. It's to work and apply that salvation in the lives of God's people. And so my point is, in that plan, in the divine plan of redemption, God himself 
He gives honor to submission by taking the second person of the Trinity and making him one who submits. He submits to the Father. He even submits to us, his people, to the hands of evil men and hanging on a cross. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And so look, I, don't, I hope you have followed along with all of this. And the point that I've been trying to make this whole time are the grounds of Paul's teaching here. It is rooted in creation. It's rooted in dignity and worth and value. It's, and it's rooted in the, the divine order, at least economically. It is rooted in the divine order itself. Now, I know that's been a lot already, but if you'll stick with me for about five more minutes, I'm going to just broach the subject of the practice of what Paul is teaching us here. So just bear with me just for a second. Wives, in verse 18, notice, secondly, this is the the practice of Paul's teaching. Verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Again, we have to ask, does that mean that you are now a doormat? Does that mean that you are now to, to take the abuse that your husband throws at you? Is this just basically you know, a, a, another kind of enslavement? Well, notice the, the shift in language that Paul employs as he moves from wives to children. Okay? In verse 18, he says that wives are to submit. In verse 20, and in, in, when he's speaking of servants, he says that they are to do what? They are to obey. Now, that's important. Because obedience is something that I can demand, right? My my children, they are to be obedient because I am their father, and I can demand that obedience, whether they like it or not. It is required, and it is what they have to do. And you know this is true. You know, like when you think of your kids and they have done something wrong and you make them go apologize, and they don't want to do it, and they're like, nope, I'm not going you're like, yes, you are. And no, I'm not. And finally they go, and they do this, and they say, I'm sorry. And they turn around and walk away, right? They didn't want to do that. And it was not sincere, but because they have to be obedient to you, they go and they do it. Submission, on the other hand, in the word itself, implies a voluntary willingness to place oneself under the authority of another. It's not something demanded. It's something that we voluntarily do. One more example, Philippians chapter 2. You remember there when talking about Jesus. It says that one day when he returns in all of his glory, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Both of these things, obedience and submission, will be at play on that day. Those who are, belong to him, they will willingly bow the knee to Jesus and they will confess he is Lord. Those who do not belong to him, they will bow whether they want to or not. It will be obedience at that point because he demands it. Well, friends, as we take that and we apply it to Paul's command here, submission is not something, ladies, that husbands are demanding or should be demanding out of an inferior. Again, that's something closer to obedience. Now, submission here is a wife sacrificially giving of herself 
willingly placing herself under the authority and the headship that God has given to husbands. Now, does that mean that, that you have no rights? Does that mean you have no voice, that you have to give universal agreement? Men, we all better hope not, because there's too many times where Renee comes back to me and says, hey, you may not want to do that, and she's right, you know? There, there's times where we need our wives to stand up and say, this is wrong. You don't need to do this. If we're leading people down the wrong path, our families are otherwise. Wives, you have the right to step up and say, I don't think that's right. But ultimately, the responsibility, it falls to husbands. And so wives submit, they are to submit, as they would to the Lord. Now, ladies, it's just me and you talking now. No, I'm just kidding. Let's recognize that this is hard. And it's hard for several reasons. It's hard because we live in a culture that rejects it. It's hard because men have failed in their roles. And men, get ready. I'm coming for you. And it's hard because of our own sinful hearts. We all want control. We all want to believe that we have this right to some form of happiness. And let's be frank. Sometimes submission means we're not going to be happy all the time. See the Garden of Gethsemane and our Savior bent down, sweating great drops of blood, submitting to the will of his Father. He recognized what was coming, and it was not fun. But notice, by way of encouragement, that if you are submitting, you are doing it as to the Lord. The motivation here is not how wonderful your husband is. The motivation here is not how great he is. It's truly not anything about him, really, not even his authority. The motivation here is how wonderful Christ is. The motivation is how great and good he is. It's his authority that you are submitting to. It's for him that you do these things. And so in that way, it's a reflection of that relationship that you have with him, that total transformation that we have talked about. Ladies, this is countercultural. It is not easy, but it is what God calls you to, knowing that it is what Christ has done for you. And I am convinced that he will give you the grace to do it, to look to him to rest in Him. Submit as you submit to the Lord. Finally, men, if I could take my jacket off and I could roll up my sleeves, this is the time where we would do it. Let's be honest. Many of us like the way that submission sounds. We like that a lot and we wish we could stop at verse 18. Let's get down to the heart of this. The reason why marriage and family is in the state that it's in, the reason why there is so much confusion in roles, gender, and marriage and otherwise, is because we men have not taken the authority that God has given us very seriously at all. We have not honored him in what he has called us to do. We like authority. We like submissive wives. But we either, one, 
run from responsibility like Adam did in the garden. We run or we're lazy or we put it off or we distort godly authority. We make it domineering. We make it where we stand above everyone else. We make it abusive. Well, men, and you better listen to me, even as I preach to my own heart right now, even as I try to listen to these words, hear me now. There's a hard reality that every one of us is going to have to face. Each of us, as husbands and as fathers, we will have to give an account one day on how we have led our wives, on how we have led our families, as those who are called to be teachers, those who are given authority, we will be judged accordingly. Not only that, but men, our actions, our lack thereof, they have generational consequences. Generational God says, I deliver the iniquity of the father onto the third and to the fourth generations. Think of the story of Achan in Joshua. He steals the devoted things, and who suffers the punishment? It's not just Achan, it's his whole family. Think about David, King David, the greatest king of Israel. He sins with Bathsheba, and what are the direct results of that sin? His family falls apart. Absalom tries to steal the throne from him, and from then on, even Solomon, he, he, everything falls apart. Generational consequences. And what you do, how you treat your wives, how you treat your children, God's not playing around about that. He, he's not messing around with those things. And so the hard reality leads us to a hard step. Each of us, myself included, we need to repent. We need to fall down on our faces before the maker of heaven and earth. And we need to cry out to him for forgiveness. Not only that, but we need to take responsibility. And we need to pray that God would make us the husbands and the fathers that Paul describes here. Ones who love their wives. Let's be honest, that sounds anticlimactic, right? I've built all of this up and here's the command, go and love your wife. And you say, well, hey, I'm doing that all right. But recognize that this is not I love tacos. This is not I love baseball or I love TV shows. No, this is that agape love that we like to make so much about. This is 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. This is Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In verse 28, he says, husband loves your wives even as you love your own body. Again, it's back to Genesis 1. It's that idea of being one flesh, unity, oneness of that marriage relationship. This is Jesus' love for you that he now calls you to go give to your wife, to give to your children. And so it leaves, as Paul says, no room for harshness, no room for insults or infidelity or abandonment or intimidation or unreasonable demands. Now, this requires seeking her good above all else, the good of your children above all else, what's best not for you, but what's best for them even for laying down your own life 
for their sake. This is sacrificial love. Now look, sometimes that authority, that sacrificial authority means doing what's hard. Hard in their lives and hard in yours. That's what real love is. It's not go do whatever you want to. It is I love you enough to say this truth to you. It's hard. But we're doing it for the good of our bride. We're doing it for the good of our family. Just as Christ gave himself for the good of his bride. For the good of his family. Men, we could all stand around and say, oh yeah, look at verse 18 there. Paul says, wives, go submit. And children, verse 20, you must obey. But each of us, we better recognize that he has far more to say to us men than he does to them. And he says the things that he says to us in a lot stronger terms than he says to anyone else. I mean, your wives, they need you to lead. They need you to lead. Families, they need you to lead. Because that's the way that God has designed it. That's what he calls you to do. And here's the deal. If we lead like he commands us to lead, loving our wives as Christ loved the church, and let's be frank, submission at that point not going to be very hard. In fact, submission is going to be a joy. Just as we submit to Christ, because he loves us in that way. And so, men and women, let me conclude by saying this. And I said I was going to come back to this, and I am now. You may have failed in this area. Let's be frank. Every single one of us have failed in these areas to some degree or another. None of us have done this perfectly. None of us have been perfect husbands. None of us have been perfect wives or perfect children. We have all messed this up. So, let's recognize that God's grace in Christ, it is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. It is sufficient to cover even this type of sin. So we can look to him. We can repent. And he invites us in. And he does not push us away. And he can take even the mess of our lives. And he can make it for his glory. He can make it for his honor. He, he can make it new. Okay? But secondly, let me also say to you along those lines. It's not too late. You know, you may think that things are falling apart and they can't be transformed. They can't, nothing, nothing can help. I want to say to you, in Christ, it is not too late. I hadn't said this, but the theme of these verses is seven times he says the Lord. Either in the Lord or of the Lord or do it as you're doing it to the Lord. The theme is the Lord. With him, all things are possible. And so I just want to say to you, not a false hope. Because he's in control of all things and we trust him in all things. I don't want to give you a false sense of hope, but I also want to say to you, as we said to the seniors, press on. Press on as you are looking to Christ. and Take these roles that he has given us. Take them seriously. And then I'll conclude with that, that verse there on the top of your bulletin from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, he who builds it, labors in vain. And so today, may all of us, as parents and as husbands and wives, may we look to him and trust in him. May we live in him as we pray together. Father God, we thank you.
uh, for your love for us. Lord, these are hard, hard verses. Uh, there's no way around it, and that's the truth that we see in front of us, and yet it's what you call us to. And so, Father, we pray that you would work the truth in our hearts. Uh, help us to love you more than we love our own selves. Help us to love you more than we love our sins. And in loving you more than we love ourselves, help us to do what you have called us to do. And Lord, that means wives are to submit to their husbands. And that means husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, Lord, we can't do that by ourselves. Our lives are a testimony of that. If we try to do this by ourselves, we will surely fail. And so we ask that you would fill our lives, that you would fill our marriages, that you would fill our homes, that all that we do would be for your glory, and that as we do that, though that doesn't mean everything is always going to be easy, we pray that you would bless us richly. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.